0: you have your Bibles, open it up to Philippians chapter 4. We're going to continue our series today. Good grief. Our series in Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, sorry, the book called Philippians, is a 16-week series that we've entitled Joy and Pain. And it was our study as a church to be able to understand the Lord's perspective through the Apostle Paul of just what it means to be more convinced of God's work in our life than the enemy's work around our life. Paul writes from prison to church that he planted, and he writes with a tenor of joy and excitement that's unrivaled in any of his other letters, and it's a beautiful sort of out-of-context juxtaposition of someone whose circumstances would indicate he should feel one way, but his heaven stance indicates he feels exactly the right way. And we're, we're doing 16 weeks here. This is our 15 week. We'll close the series next week. And, and, and today, we get to really sort of begin our wrap-up with his final thoughts <laughs> Chapter 4, verses 10 through 13, it's going to contain a message or a scripture in here that I know that I know that I know that you know. It reads like this. Philippians 4, chapter 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And the title of today's message is Out of Context. We're gonna talk about this verse and what it really means, Paul's intention, but I'm also gonna talk about the Bible at large today. This is going to be a wonderful springboard for us to really understand what we know about the Bible, maybe what we don't know, and to get ourselves on the right track. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. God, we thank you for this word. Now I ask that you'd remove me from here, that your word would reign supreme in this room, that you would soften our hearts and open our minds to hear from you, that you'd cast aside every agenda that is unlike you, and that you'd make us that you'd break us, that you'd challenge us, and that you'd renew us, in Jesus' name, amen. The big idea for today is this, it's important to know the word of God, comma, ready, accurately. I'll say it again, because it's vital. It is so important that you, believer, one who calls yourself a Christian, it's so important that you know the word of God, but you have to be absolutely sure that you know the word of God accurately. And the reason we have to say this is because lots of us know the word of God, just like we know that guy we took a photo with that one time. Do you know, have you ever been to an Italian restaurant and they have a thousand photos of celebrities on the wall and it's all autographed? You and I would not think that the guy who runs that Italian restaurant personally and intimately knows every celebrity, right? But his attitude towards knowing people is very similar to our attitude towards knowing the Bible. I, I'm just coming right for your throat right <laughs> off the bat. I hope you don't <laughs> mind. I hope you don't mind. But, but this is the problem with, I think, most of us today as believers is that we, we know this is important, but it's long. Am I right? Show of hands. How many of have read the Bible all the way? Never mind, I'm just playing. I'm playing. But if we're really being honest, lots of us have actually never read the whole Bible or haven't taken the time to really study the Bible. And because Christianity is still, despite the enemy's best attempts, the modern and dominant faith tradition in our country, we can call ourselves Christian because culturally we're Christian, but not really be Christian because spiritually we're not Christian. We we can say things like, I believe in Jesus, but I couldn't tell you where in the Bible it explained to me what that actually meant. We can quote two or three scriptures that we kind of know only because we've seen them on signs and flagpoles behind the field goal marker on a Sunday morning. John 3, 16, I know that one. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. That one's mine, I believe it, I love it. What's it mean? Uh, Jesus is really rad, We wouldn't be able to, most of us, really cleanly articulate the gospel. If I were to say, after church today, each one of us is going to hit this street. There are thousands of people running, and I've bought running shoes for each one of you. I want you to pick somebody on the marathon, and I want you to pace with them, and I want you to give them a four-minute gospel presentation, right? If I were to challenge you today and say, let's just do it, right? Everybody came down to the city. Let's get them all Jesus. And I got you good shoes, so you can't complain about that. If I challenge you to give a four-minute presentation of the gospel, which included the fall of man, the punishment of sin, the plan of Jesus, his redemption, and what it means to really truly live filled by the gospel, filled with the Holy Spirit. How many of you could do it from start to finish? Most of us can't because we've been given just enough of the word to kind of be inoculated to knowing the word. We've heard just enough pithy, cute phrases to feel like we kind of know God's intention, but we've never really read it from his throne. And our desire today is is to do that so that you aren't culturally Christian. So that you're like really Christian, right? I want that each one of our church members would love to be called a Bible thumper. Wouldn't that be rad? Man, you just talk about the Bible all day. Yes, I do. Do you know why? Because the power of life and death is here. So let's do this today. What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna set the stage for the power of God's word. I'm gonna really truly explain what it actually is and in hopes that it will invite you to press in, to pull out, to get a better understanding of what it is. Then number two, what I'm gonna do is Talk about how it's under attack and our tendency as believers, as cultural Christians to revise scripture to make it work for us. We're gonna look at some of the most common misinterpreted scriptures and then we're gonna dive right into this piece, especially this verse and get a better understanding of what it truly means. Let me share this with you. Let's talk about the power of God's word. The apostle Paul knows the power of god's word he teaches from a position of power because he's a pharisee and a scribe he has nearly memorized every word of scripture he's just like david when he would say thy word have i hidden in my heart that i might not sin against you and so because these two men understand the power of the word i wanted to jump into one of the teachings, one of the Psalms, one of the cries of the heart of King David when he talks about what the word of God meant for him. Psalm 19, verse seven through 10. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect. It revives my soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. It makes wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. Rejoicing my heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, it enlightens the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, it endures forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. They are more to be desired, are they, than gold, even much fine gold. I read that to you today because I want you to understand that this, this is going to be, this has to be, the single most important thing that you possess. If David, the king, the psalmist, the warrior, the poet, said for him every word from the throne of God was the single most valuable word in his life, then it stands to reason it should be of the same value and import to you. Paul tells us, that this word is is vital to our walk. And he echoes David when he says it's pure and it's perfect. But later on, we learn that the Bible is living and active. You've known this before when you've read scripture, and then some years or months down the road, you've read the same scripture, but it felt different. It, It hit different. You ever had one scripture just speak to one part of your heart, and then God healed it and changed you? And then the next season, same scripture, new part of your heart, that's because it's not dead, it's not stagnant, it's not old. It is the word of God, living and active, cutting through to bone and marrow, right to your heart to try to get you to understand, ready, his heart. That's the point of the word, that you and I might come to know him. And it's good that it's living and active because so many of us are stubborn and we need fresh revelation, even if it's from the same words week in and week out. But I think it's also important that we as believers understand that it is absolutely true, and as believers, we will always hold to this standard of Scripture. We believe that this Bible in its original translations, and to the best of the ability of modern translators today, stands as inerrant. That means without fault or without error. And the critics will say, hold on, how could it be without error? There have been so many translations. You've heard this criticism before, right? It's been translated and translated and translated. And that argument seems to throw many Christians off balance. It feels like it sweeps the rug right out from underneath our feet because it presupposes that every translation was done from the previous translation, meaning that if Gary read something and translated, then when I came, I worked from Gary's manuscript. But that's not the way Bible study, critical textual, Criticism or exegesis has ever been done. All the study of the Bible and translations has gone back, not from the most recent translation, but even to earlier translations. We've always, as the course of understanding this text, these holy scriptures, gone back to the original or earliest finding that we could have to say, what was the first meaning? So while there are many translations, most all of those translations go back to the beginning. Is it okay if I teach this morning for just a bit? You've got to know this about your Bible. Otherwise, when someone says it's just some guy's ideas, you won't have any answer. Here's something you should know about the Bible. There is a study, a scientific discipline called historiography, and it is a discipline wherein the scientists in that study date and validate historical documents. It is not a Christian body of study. It is a secular body of study recognized throughout the world people get their phds they teach courses they write books all about how to look at ancient writings how to date them correctly and how to validate if they are in fact in authentic and what they do in an effort to authenticate documents is to look at when was the earliest manuscript found and how many similar manuscripts from the same time period were found That helps us to understand that whenever a document was created, perhaps, say, Homer's Iliad or Plato's first writings or Aristotle's first thoughts, it helps us to look at the first time one of those manuscripts was found and how many times quickly thereafter they were translated for mass dissemination. That's one of the primary tools that we authenticate documents. And the Bible... Specifically, the New Testament has been brought under such a secular study and microscope to find out, is it really the story of Jesus, or is this like this weird cult trying to make a fake religion? I want you to be encouraged today that your New Testament, the one that you have on your phone or in your paper Bible, is today considered the gold standard of authenticated ancient documents. Across all measurements, specifically in historiography, it is known to be the most valid, most authentic, and most clearly and originally translated document that exists. Over 25,000 manuscripts have been found since the first translations, all dated within 75 years of Jesus' death. That makes it, in terms of what we call true, The truest document that has ever existed See, but if you don't know that And someone says it's just some guy's opinion If you're like me, you kind of get your feelings hurt, huh? You're like, no, it's not God wrote it (laughs) And you have no ground to stand on I need you to understand that we hold it to be inerrant And we're backed up by science that says, nope, it's inerrant It's proven Now, here's the next stretch of understanding the power of God's word as believers. We believe that it is his word, and the canon of scripture represents the whole of his word, meaning he doesn't need to say anything else. Amen? Someone comes up to you with a brand new revelatory word, a prophecy that is not included, not echoed, not hinted, not shown, not typed and shadowed in this scripture. You can just block out the bad and hold on to the good. I want you to understand that once he finished this, he was done. And if God never said another word to you, he has said enough. And what that means for all of us today... Is that when someone has a new gospel, the book of Enoch, the book of Mormon, the book of whatever, that says, yes, the Bible is good, and then also there's this other stuff from God, you can completely cancel it. Because at the end of the gospels, at the end of Revelation, John himself, under the unction of the Holy Spirit, writes and says, there shall be no more testaments, we are done. What it tells us then as believers is that he's done here in the 66 books from in the beginning all the way to the scariest book you've ever read in Revelation, but to understand that he's coming back, if he's done here, then that means he doesn't need to say anything else, which means that this is not only inerrant, but it's also sufficient for your life. Here's what it means. You don't need another manual playbook or any other self-help video to figure out how to live life. Everything is in here. And I don't, you know, I know lots of people like to go to Tony Robbins or watch Gary Vee online or pull from any one of these world influencers who's got all of the best ways for you to live your best life now. And if we can just pause for a minute, I don't want to live my best life now. I want to live my best life then. Right, Amen? All right, anyway, listen, if it's sufficient, you need nothing else. So for everything that you struggle with, everything you worry about, everything that you hope for, all that you wonder, all that you need, all that you desire, it is found in these pages. And you say, Pastor, yes, but I also need therapy. Amen. Go to a Christian counselor, and they'll open the word to you and say, yeah. it's right here. Yeah. The difference between those of us to understand and act upon the sufficiency of scripture is whether or not we take him at his word. See, we get worried and nervous and we say, you know, it's a good, I mean, I love it and the story about Jesus, but you know, I'm just, I'm just really having a difficult time. And someone might say to you, consider the birds of the air. They neither reap nor sow, nor, nor store grain in barns and yet your father takes care of them. Why do you worry? You see, there's, there's something in here for you for every season. We believe it's true and inerrant. We believe it's sufficient. We also believe, ready, that if it is the word of God and he is holy and righteous, that it has all authority as well. And this This will probably be the challenge for most people in this generation and the generations to come, which is, it's actually not very hard to believe in the beauty of the word. It's very hard to fall into submission to the word. So we have people who come to our church and they'll ask questions about, hey pastor, they'll try to corner me when I'm saying bye to you on the way out. Pastor, they'll grab me and there's no one to save me. And they're like, pastor. What does your church believe about? And then they'll do whatever, whichever one is their one, right? And I'll say, oh, well, our church is very diverse. And so many people walk into church with a different belief. But as an organization, and me as the pastor, I just believe what the Bible says. And they'll say, well, that, 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 I don't like that. That, 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 that doesn't work for me. And I'm like, dude, I totally get it. There's parts in this Bible that I don't like either. One of the biggest debates right now is what qualifies constitutes life, right? Or, this one's huge too, what constitutes marriage or love or gender, right? And those are wonderful topics for people to corner their pastor and try to get him to say the wrong things so they can leave and say, he's a bigot, amen? amen? Yeah. And so I just flip it around on them. Whenever they ask me which one of those things are in there, I just say, you know, There's a lot of truth in here that may offend you. And it should. Because we're fallen human beings living in a fallen world with instructions from a perfect God on how to fall in love with Jesus and live a perfect life. And there are parts in this thing that will rub you the wrong way because that means that you have to be different. Me too. There are... There are things in here about being nice to people that are just really hard. <laughs> or I joke with some of our young men sometimes. You know, Jesus sets a really hard standard to submit to the world, the word when he says, if you even look at a woman with lustful eyes, that's adultery. You see the standard here. See, I don't know what your hot button issue is, but I guarantee you there's a button issue in here that will offend every one of us here. None of us are perfect, amen? And we come into submission, we come into understanding, we seek the word of the Lord to find out which part of my life is not yet in line with God's will for my life. My desire is that our church is full of people who have questions so that we we can look to the answer. Amen? Now, I'm, I'm definitely not perfect at the delivery of the answers, and we've lost a lot of people who've been more married to their idea of the way God should let them be than to the concept that they should fall in love with God's standard for who he wants them to be. And that will happen time and time again, and I want you to understand, while I might yell, it breaks my heart every time. Not because we lose a person, but because they might have just lost their chance. My prayer for us as believers is that we're a body who is welcoming to people with all walks, questions, wonders, lifestyles. And that we would walk alongside them as the Lord strips off the world's assignment on their life to get them to a place of soft heart. To say, okay, 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 what do you want? But it starts with you. See, if you're not submitted to the will of the Lord and the word of the Lord, especially in areas about your own personal comfort and what you think are no big deals, you cannot effectively walk with or ask anyone else to do the same. Amen? So right now you got something that you know is in the Bible that says don't, and you do. (laughs) I want to challenge you today to recognize that if it has authority, it needs all authority over all areas of your life. Amen? It has such power. And the more that you read it, the more beautiful it becomes. If you've ever had a challenge reading the Bible, how many, this is a fun one, show of hands, you've ever started a reading plan and then just bailed because you were bored out of your mind? How many of you? Okay, there you go, all of us. Guess who else? Me! Totally me! Try it again today. Try it again. Try it again today. Try any number of reading plans. If you have the Bible app on your phone, I want to push you today. Start one tomorrow, whichever one works. Start a four-day devotional. Try to do the whole Bible in 30 days. It's called a shred. It will blow your mind. Do any number of studies, but whatever it is, get some time in the Word every day to get it into you. Be careful when you get to the prophets. It'll scare your pants off, but the rest of it's so sweet. But you've got to get it in you, amen? Now here's the deal, because the Bible, because the word of God has such power, because it is without error, because it is fully sufficient, and because it has all authority and all power, it is always under attack, always under attack. And the assignment of the enemy to attack the Bible, to attack the world, comes in two ways. Consider this, the enemy is always asking, did God really say that? Consider his first interaction with Eve in the garden, right? Adam and Eve get clear instructions on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the serpent walks up and doesn't immediately dismiss. Or deny what God says. He just plants a question. Is that really what God said? That is the continuing attack over Scripture from the enemy. Now, that one you can be mindful of. You can be aware of. If somebody ever says to you, is that what it really says? Ooh, you get a little nervous around that, folk. Just start praying for them right there, right there. Just put your hand on their face. Dear Jesus, I rebuke this demon in the name. There's another attack on the Scriptures that I think you may understand and may not see as often it comes in two ways the first is that the enemy will try to question and convolute and then the, the second is that the enemy will try to make it part of human nature to just misinterpret it to just read the same words but see it wrong you've done this before you've read scripture and then walked away and been like so i'm i'm going to hell i'm doomed Right? Or you've read some of the Old Testament and you're like, "So I can never wear wool, I don't understand it." <laughs> and the reason that so many of us we fall into, and you, and you should have all in, at some point and continue, come into a place where you read Scripture and it makes a little bit of no sense to you, right? That's part of our journey. That's human nature is to to miss the mark. And, And I want you to understand that behind all of that is the enemy's very best attempts at trying to get you to miss God's intent. If the enemy can get you asking the wrong questions, meaning, is that really true, God? Or to say something like, I'm pretty sure it means this. I've done no further study, but someone that I met at church one time said it. That must be true. Either way... The one that is a deliberate attack and the one that's sort of this subversive up from the bottom attack are both designed by the enemy so that you miss God's intent and then he limits your ability to truly know God. That's the whole point. The whole point. The enemy would love it if you knew every word but didn't understand any of them. And he loves people who are scholars. Whoop. Smart people, studiers, teachers, exegete, hermeneutics, all the studies, but don't know him here. The enemy loves those people too. And if you ever meet somebody who really hates the Bible, like a hardcore atheist who spends their whole life debating, have you ever met anybody who knows the Bible more? My gosh, I've been in a few debates and I'm like, I actually have no idea what we're talking about anymore. (laughs) You are so smart. But you don't know him. And that's the key, is that God's word is the vehicle to know God's heart. And you have to know God's heart. And so the enemy works very, very hard to try to get us to miss it. Or to have different understandings of the same text. As a church, we are, um, I have no idea what denomination we could be qualified as. People are like, non-denominational? I'm like, yes, who knows? We have the weirdest kind of tradition. We have a very charismatic expression, amen? We have a pretty reformed style of teaching, amen? We have what looks like a congregationally-led sense of community, which is awesome. We're super young. We welcome people from all walks of life. That makes us, quote-unquote, a seeker church. But I preach a repentance message that makes us Baptist. We... (laughs) People pray in tongues during service, that makes us Pentecostal, <laughs> right? And then we still do some other things that are a little more Presbyterian from time to time. We have a little bit of everything, and that's totally fine. Because I think that once you sort of align yourself with just one sect, you start to make sect more important than body. Do you know what i You ever meet somebody that's from one of those sects and they're positive that the other sect is not a Christian? Meet a Baptist. Meet a Baptist. Ask them if they'll go to a Pentecostal church with you. They're like, oh, no, those heathens are going to hell. You go to a Pentecostal service and you're like, I have never felt the Holy Spirit like this in my whole life, right? What in the heavens is going on? The problem is is when we align ourselves with with a tribe, we miss the kingdom. Amen. And so I work really hard to make it so that you fit here. So when you come and you talk to me after service and you're like, I don't like that part. I'm like, it's, it's weird, right? Which part do you like? Well, I love that part. Sweet. Stick for that part. Grow in the other. And we do that so that we don't get caught up in one camp that has our one interpretation of the text. Because here's, here, here's the problem. You could read Paul's teaching and dis- dissertation on the spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians and believe that what he says is the gifts were nice, but they're done. That's called cessationism. The tradition of teaching that we come from believes that. But you could read the exact same portion of Scripture and see Paul's understanding of the gifts as though they were meant for here and now. That's called charismatic. They both read the same text, but they're more married to the crew, the family, the ideology, that they argue with each other over the same text. And I want you to live in that tension True believers should look at the scripture and go, you know what? I don't totally know all of it. I don't even understand it all perfectly. It feels like it's written by someone who's smarter and bigger and more powerful than me. The true faith journey of the word and you is knowing that there's tension between what little that you know and how much he knows. And as soon as you meet somebody who's from a tribe who says they would have it all figured out, that cannot be your tribe because no one has it all figured out. And we get to walk this thing together, amen? So right now in this room, there are some cessationists, some people who believe that there are to be no spiritual gifts. What? (laughs) On the other side, we have people in this church who believe that the spiritual gifts should be happening right now, and they're really hoping I'm going to lay hands on people, and they'll fall today. (laughs) Followed by another, what? We are meant to live together. together. Amen. Yes. Let's talk about some common misconceptions. Some verses that maybe you know but you don't know correctly. I alluded to sort of the understanding of the gifts. There's many understandings around money and how to give. That one rubs people wrong and certain certain traditions believe that the more you give the more holy you get and other traditions believe the poorer you are the more holy you are both are dead wrong amen but there are other more insidious misinterpretations of scripture that sneak in and they feel good and almost all of us hold on to them but they're all wrong tell me if you you've heard this scripture before he'll never put more on you than you can bear have you ever heard that doesn't that feel good when I hear that, I'm like, well, thank you. <laughs> Nothing I face is bigger than me. That's what it means, right? It means that no matter what the Lord allows in my life, I can defeat it. Amen? You, you and I know that verse from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. It says this. No temptation." has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Oh, so close. We hear this one all the time. Oh, I mean, it's even a gospel song. Oh, he'll never put more on you than you can bear. Kirk Franklin wrote a banger. And it's misinterpreted scripture because it feels so good. We want it to be true. And that is how the enemy helps us miss the impetus and import of scripture. He gets you so close that it feels almost God, but it isn't God. Notice this, okay? The verse that we know is that he'll never put more on you, but the verse is actual. He'll never let you be tempted. And I think what's better here is this. Whenever the enemy tries to get us to misinterpret Scripture, he sort of condenses it. He he sort of salinates it, makes it sterile. It's just enough for you to feel good with. And I think he does it on purpose so that you and I won't dive into the true meaning of it. Here's the deal. It feels good to hear that I'll never go through a tough season but I'm going to be honest with you. That's just not true in my life. I've I've been through myriad tough seasons and I'll go through yet more. And so if that word is true, then I'm having a real tough time understanding what he means. But the real scripture, well, it's just so much more powerful. If he really says, CB, Scott, Italia, I will never let you be in a situation where you fall into sin without my help. I'll never let the temptation of sin be greater than you can resist. I will never abandon you when you're most tempted. In fact, I'm so faithful, I'll always make a door that you can escape through. Can I tell you right now, that for me is almost, well, it's way better because I'm going to go through some hard seasons. But there are some temptations that I'm desperate that the Lord makes away. Huh? And why does he choose this and not hard seasons? Why is the verse that's actually true about sin and not about trial? The reason is thus. God cares most about sin. Hear me, here's the hard part. God doesn't care if you go through a difficult season. Did you know that? Sorry. <laughs> He doesn't. If he works all things together, then he'll take even your hardest season and make it good for you, make you stronger, make you more resilient, make you full of faith, make it so that you are who he called you to be. So he's not worried about your tough time. He's worried about you falling into sin and missing your opportunity to live with him forever. So he doesn't say, I'll protect you from struggle. He says, I'll fight for you against sin. And that's the nuance. See, the enemy makes it sound good, but the enemy's like, no, don't worry about sin. Just worry about circumstance. You see it? It's like, oh, it's like, I, I, oh, I, I just, I, he'll never put more on me. And the enemy's like, yeah, man, now let's go sin. And you're like, he'll never put more on. God cares about your holiness. You tracking with me? Let's talk about the second most common misinterpreted verse. You know this one. You get told this one all the time when people find out you're a Christian. (laughs) Judge not! You know how they don't know anything after that part, right? Doesn't your Bible say you can't judge? And if you haven't read your Bible, you think they're right. It comes from Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Jesus says, judge not, lest you be judged. Period. Second sentence, you ready? And with the measure that you judge. Hold on, wait a minute. Hey, hold on. I've only heard don't judge, right? But Jesus says, don't judge, lest you want to be judged. And when you judge, let's do it again. Don't judge, unless you want to be judged. And when you judge do you see this shift you see the world just wants to point at you and say you're judgmental when you tell me about your scripture it hurts my feelings so I'll make you the bad guy so I don't have to be confronted in my sin so you don't judge and Jesus might echo them and say just be careful when you judge I'm going to take a closer look at the exact same thing in you but when you judge them He says it right here. For with the measure you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. But jump down in the text a little bit because they never get this far. Verse 15, he says this, you will recognize them by their fruit. This is the same Jesus who says, judge not, lest you want to be judged. And when you judge, just be mindful, that's the area I'm paying attention to. And when you judge, look at the fruit of people. Make your decisions based on the fruit that they bear. Are they walking in the gifts and the fruits of the Spirit? Are they full of joy? Are they full of peace? Are they full of patience, gentleness, self-control? Do they love you? Judge them based on what they bear. You see the difference there? So the enemy is trying to put a hard stop on a very nuanced question that Jesus is presenting to his believers to say, I have put you into this world to be my ambassadors and yes, my discerners of fruit. But be mindful that you're not rude about it and that whatever cause you take up to be the one who points the finger at it, that will be the cause I take the closest examination in you. It's not a push not to judge. Jesus is teaching us to judge well. And the enemy says, judge not. And Jesus says, no, judge, totally judge. Just do it really, really good. Number three, third one. You know this one, super common, super popular. Everybody quotes it. It's in every like mob movie. It's like tough guy stuff. It says this. It says, um, money is the root of all evil. But the apostle writes to his spiritual son, Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 10 and he says Timothy the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil money is not bad loving money is not bad but it sure is dangerous you hear me? see that's why so many of us have this weird thing about money when the pastor comes up and asks for an offering they're like he just wants money no man I don't (laughs) <laughs> I want you to not love your money. I have, I have been through seasons where I loved money. I was listening to a news story yesterday about the curse of people and their decision makings around finances and there's these common psychological paradigms through which people see money and some people hate money and simultaneously worship money. They hate it because they don't have it but they can't stop thinking about it day in and day out. It's true of almost every American today. We can reject any number of the societal norms of wealth, but we envy those who have the same wealth or we'll demonize those who have wealth and say they're bad because they have it. The inverse is true. People with wealth will always demonize those who don't. We'll call them lazy or worthless or bad. It's sinful. It's inherently terrible that they don't do things the right way. Money and its worship has this insipid, incessant way of dividing people So that we take opposite sides And God says money's not bad But how you think about money can be bad And can lead you to do the wrong things And so the enemy just says money's bad A dividing line It's the same tactic Let's find a way to get Christians on the opposite side And Jesus' nuanced phrase is really a, A togetherness phrase Hey, it's cool if in this church you have rich people. You need them. It's also cool if in this church you have people who aren't rich. You need them. It's good if there are people who walked in this room full of debt and people who figured out how to get out of debt. You see the compromise and... And the way that this community can work together, there are some of you here who will never have money, but your head will be full of vision and energy, and you will cast the vision that the people with money will give provision for. You see, he aligns people all together across all different backgrounds so that we can do things. And the enemy just says, money's bad. Separate. Amen. Even when it sounds holy, money is evil. Oh, that must be the Bible. Let's take this home and talk about this scripture that we know and love so well that we've really completely gotten wrong. I'll read it to you again, Philippians four ten through 13. Paul writes and he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you've revived your concern for me. You were concerned for me, but had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned that whatever situation I'm in, to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound and in every circumstance, I've learned the secret of placing fl- plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This is another of probably the most misinterpreted scriptures. And I want you to know right off the bat, this scripture is not about achievement, plain and simple. Even though Tim Tebow puts it on his eyes, And even though nearly everybody who reaches the pinnacle of their success loves this verse as proof that they did it through the strength of the Lord, Paul is not talking about through God what you can achieve. That's not the conversation. What he's really saying is through God, by his strength, you can endure that is actually way more important. I want you to understand that if this scripture actually meant that with God I can do anything I've dreamed of, then what it actually does is reduce God to a mechanism by which I can actualize my plans. I will use his strength to achieve my goals. But the scripture has nothing to do with your goals. The scripture is actually what we learned was a misinterpretation of 1 Corinthians 10 and 13. When it said, he'll never put more on you than you can bear, we miss it, except that it's right here. And the only way we truly understand it is if we read this whole scripture the way we talk about week in and week out. In the text, the full text, the whole text, in context, with no pretext. Amen? So we have to see verse 13 with 10, 11, and 12. And the way we do it is we consider first Paul's writing in context. We've just noticed in verse 10 that he remembers from the first chapter how this church was the only church that ever cared for him when he was in prison. Remember when we did this? About four months ago, he said, I was in prison, and none of the other churches that I planted loved on me, but y'all loved on me. Thank you. Side note, when you give a gift to your pastor, he just loves it. Anyway, look, <laughs> pastors love when people take care of them. It's absolutely true because most of our work is pretty thankless. And he says, I just rem- I remembered how you-, you took such good care of me. He says, not not that I'm trying to suggest to you, read it right here, this is this paraphrase, not that I'm trying to suggest to you that I'm in need right now. In fact, I want you to understand that I I have learned the secret of traveling and planning churches and standing before the, the home church in Jerusalem. I know the secret between being in the highest of highs and writing to you from this Roman prison, the lowest of my lows. See, the context of this scripture is to say, I've been in really difficult seasons. But see, but if you only cherry pick verse 13, you'll miss it. You'll miss that he's, as a part of the entire purpose of the letter, but specifically this last part, trying to remind him through the lesson of his own life that suffering is an inevitable part of life. That's the context through which this message comes, verse 10. Verse 10. Verse 11, we have to look at his intentions in the first writing. He writes and he says, Not that I'm speaking of being in need, I've learned that whatever situation I am in to be content, his intention is to say, Suffering's a part of life, but you don't have to have it be a part of your life. He says, I, I'm in a really bad situation right now. I'm in a Roman prison. I write to you through chains. There are Praetorian guards who are stationed here with me, and they have to allow my friends to come and bring me food. I've been sick. I've been shipwrecked twice. I've been bitten. I have gone through all hell, and it turns out none of that really matters to me. I'm in the best headspace I've ever been in in my entire life. I'm doing really good. He's trying to tell them in this moment, it's totally normal to go through hell. Hell just doesn't have to go through you. That's his intention. That's the push. That's what he's leaning into this church. He's trying to say, you, church, the one I planted, the one I love, I know that things are they're not perfect and things are going to get more difficult, but I want you to understand that because you have Jesus, you'll be fine. That's why he says, I learned the secret. No matter what the situation is, I can be content. To be content means to be satisfied yes. and motivated in anything. And those are two, boy, those are fleeting, aren't they? How many of you just in the last couple of years have just felt like you've just never been satisfied? It's just like, it, it, I mean, I'm, I'm making it, but it's just not, a, it's not enough. How many of you in the last couple of years have just motivation? <laughs> You're lucky I'm wearing pants today. <laughs> I read an article the other day, the number one selling apparel for women over the last two years of the pandemic was something called the nap dress. It's a dress made to take a nap in. Motivation is not something we have an overabundance of in this season of our lives right now. But when Paul says, I learned the secret to going through difficult seasons, it's that because Christ has died and because he rose again and because of him I can do the same, I've found that no matter what I face, the good, the bad, the ugly, I am both satisfied in my Jesus and motivated of the days to come. I know the secret. And none of his conversation has to do with his circumstance. He doesn't even look around and go, God, things are bad. He goes, man, things are so good. His context, his intention, and then the application. Verse 12, we have to look at what he's trying to impart into the people to take action on. He says, verse 12, look, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound And in every circumstance, I learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance, and need. If you were to read this upon first glance as a part of this church and heard it read to you, the intention originally was that you would be leaning in to find out what he was about to say next. I know exactly what's necessary when it's lean and when it's whole. When the shelves are stocked and when they're empty when the housing market is up and who knows what's going on. He says, I know, I know what to do next. And the intention is that you and I would go, tell me how to weather the storms. Tell me how to walk through hard seasons. What is the secret to stay content no matter what? The application for the then and the now is an invitation for you and I to say, so how do I do it? And it's only then that the apostle turns to verse 13. The verse that so many of us think, if Jesus is there, I can win. It's only then when you lean in and say, how will I make it through the flood? That Paul says, you can do anything through Christ who gives you strength. You see, the conversation has never been about what you achieve but what you can carry, what you can go through, and what you can endure. And it's better that way because it means that when you go through difficult seasons, you get him to carry some of the weight. Amen? And when Paul writes this, I wish I could have been in the room when he wrote it, in that prison with those guards. And I always imagine in my head that when Paul writes, because he's poetic and it's beautiful, that I I imagine that sometimes when the Holy Spirit were were to inspire Paul and he would write one of these lines, one of these verses, the ones that we have tattooed and posted on our walls, I always imagine in my mind that Paul is like, yes, like he's got a sense of godly pride, and that he might lean back in that prison and say, I can do all things. I can do this. I can walk through this season where I've lost my job. I can go through this season where my marriage is at odds. I can go through this season struggling to raise good kids. I can go through this season where it seems like next season is not even there. I can go through this season of uncertainty. I can win in this season. I can do all these things. I can do more than this stuff. It doesn't matter what the enemy throws at me because I got Jesus who lives inside of me. I imagine my head that Paul is in this prison and he looks at those guards and he says, I can do all of this. I got this because he's got me. It doesn't matter what I do after this, it's that I do it in this. In this thy might, in this thy anointing, in this the fact that the Father has me right here, right now on purpose. And I imagine for a moment that those guards would have looked at each other and thought, well, that's a little out of context. (laughs) He has no idea we're going to kill him, does he? No. And he don't care because he also said for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. I can do all things. Maybe this is you today. Maybe this is the conversation directly for you. Maybe for the longest time you thought this gospel was about what you could accomplish. Maybe you thought it was about bringing him along on your journey. But the fact of the matter is, is that your journey has been really dark, really painful, a big struggle, lots of questions. And you've just been wondering, like, why can't I make it work for me? And he's been saying, just let me take over. Just let me infill you. Just let me help you find contentment here. Would you bow your head all over the room this morning? I'm to speak that spirit into your life. A spirit that endures, a spirit that is satisfied, a spirit that is motivated, a spirit that says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we come to you empowered by the Holy Spirit who dwells richly in and amongst every blood-bought believer here today. And Father, we no longer come to you with a, With a misunderstanding of what your word says about what we can achieve in Jesus' name, we come to you brokenhearted and open-handed with our hearts laid out to you to say what we really want more than anything is not to get through, to achieve, but to get through so that you might be seen in us, to carry the weight, to find joy in the midst of pain, to be content in dark seasons. And to be a light that shines in the darkness, one that the darkness can overcome, to be a city on our hill, no matter how much the people attack the hill, God, our desire is that you might see us in this, our moment, and you might strengthen us from the inside out. Now, God, I, I curse the devil in Jesus' name. I curse the assignment that says I'm done, and I'm a failure, and I'm lost, and it's all over. And I declare that today is the day we start afresh and start anew. And we say with all understanding, I can do all things through Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.